Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. Where's Basket? Let's rock! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jane Prater, and I am joined by co-host... Patrick Green. And uh, today we have two guests, Dan from Shoulder of Orion and our contributor, former contributor, sometimes contributor, Dave Gobel. Welcome, guys. Thank you, thank you. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. This is our first crossover episode ever. This is the first time we're mixing... I gotta say, this feels like the dawn of a new era for us. This is like... (laughs) This is weird. I'm gonna start talking about replicants. His mom was the dawn of a new era last night. <laughs> Here we go. How do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? <laughs> anyway, so we're here tonight. We're talking about characters and specifically about the characters in Aliens as part of our 40 Miles of Bad Road series and what makes them so special and so indelible. We've touched on this a couple of times already in this series, um, you know, and, and every time we do, we talk about how we want to dedicate a full episode just to the characters. And so we're here tonight to talk about what makes them special and why we can't stop quoting this movie and why, even though many of them have very little screen time, they they live on in our memory so uh, eternally. Well, and let's just kind of... Dave and I were talking about this because we were talking about doing like support systems and talking about supporting characters, but we were discussing via text why the characters and aliens matter and why uh but why people gravitate to them more and i'm interested from our guests dave and and dan why that is why do you think people gravitate more to aliens more than any other in terms of like quotes characters like for instance the other day we posted uh jeanette goldstein as vasquez we posted her just a photo we've always <coughs> seen of her doing something with her arm and aliens with the gun or whatever. I don't know what she was doing. <laughs> um, Do, doing four, something with her. <laughs> that post got 445 likes and it, like it was a birthday shit. too. To be fair, it was it was her yeah, birthday. Uh, yeah, right, for right. sure. So but part also, of it was like there was her birthday. But every time we do anything with Vasquez on it, that shit goes viral. Totally. Right. And why is that? Why is there such a uh, uh, a connection with these characters? I think it's just the the way they're they're written, the way they're acted. Just that general idea of um, friendship and going through the shit together. It's just something everyone can relate to, whether it's work, sports, friendships, relationships, uh, you name it. It's just the, and most importantly, it's just the way they're written. It's just so it's smart, it's snappy, it's catchy, it's done 
it's done in a way that doesn't insult anybody. All the characters have um, purpose. It's just the perfect blend of anything you need in an action horror movie. And it's just, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to turn away from how, just how well it's done. And it's been copied more times than any of us could possibly count. Terribly copied. I mean, I don't know, I don't know any other film in science fiction that's as successful, but also I think there's this <clears throat> idea that when we're watching aliens, we're one of them. We're not spectators. We're not yep. watching it from afar. We are one of the Marines kind of going exactly. yeah, and it's all group. new. And when they're, you know, when they wake up and they go into the, um, the locker room area, we're also kind of walking in there with them. I mean, it's the way the camera is set. It's again, it's not this kind of like, Oh, Hey, look at them. Even when we're at the table with them, it's almost like there's a part of the camera that is at the table with them. So we're watching all the kind of shenanigans. It's pretty profound. Right. That too. And I think one thing people forget is, you know, one of the common criticisms is, Oh, it's just a dumb action movie. You know, it's just stupid, but people forget you don't see shit for over an hour. It's for, they spend an hour building the characters, learning about them. Like you said, through, through the, the mess hall and, um, you know, learning about their mission, all these little things you spend, we spend an hour knowing these guys and girls and cat, you know, it's, they, they give you, they, they dedicate the time and it's so wonderfully done. You know, something I've been thinking about, um, and I, I'm not already derailing this, I promise, but I, I was thinking about uh, <laughs> other movies that do an incredibly good job of establishing characters with relatively little uh, screen time. And I think part of why a film like Into the Spider-Verse works so well is that within the first five minutes of that movie, I you learn... What? I know. Well, I'm not going to. Okay, I'm, I'm not Patrick's religion right now. I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not, no, not, not going to talk about too it too much because I will not be able to talk about it. Please don't. But listen. So <laughs> within the first within the first five minutes of that movie, you get the same amount of character building information you would get in a two hour film by a worse. <coughs> you, you, it's it's like as and it's happening as the story the story is unfolding as the characters are just exploding in every direction and you're learning all of these details in very short amount of time and it's never being it's never like this is so and so character look at them going to school it's you know he'd had his headphones on but he didn't know the words of the song and because of that he was late and he forgot to pack because he doesn't want to go to the school but he's actually not an idiot he's just you know was running late because he wants to go to the other school that he has to walk past and his dad is trying to get him get him out of bed and his mom is saying you know hurry up slow down hurry up slow down and then he doesn't have a ride and then he trips on his shoelaces and then his dad picks him up it's just like this incredible amount of information that comes at you in the context of a story unfolding and with aliens it's the same exact thing so our first introduction to the Marines, remember, obviously, is the cryotubes opening, right? And that simple gesture of just an opening sleeping chamber already establishes something about every single character, where they're sleeping, right? Because we see Drake and Vasquez are next to each other. We see, you know, Hicks is the slow one to wake up. We see Hudson's whining. We see Apone whipping a cigar out. We see all of these different things that are just coming um, so quickly, and nobody's even talking yet, Right. It's just an instant, it's just a spontaneous unfolding of storytelling. Yeah, you're right. You see some of the personality traits just without a goddamn word. Yeah, totally. And uh, first of all, disclaimer, I promise I have seen this movie just as many times as your average Aliens fan, but I have short-term memory loss, so sometimes I forget the like secondary smaller characters or like the Marines that die right away of their names, so I apologize for that in advance. But... I don't know if they, I might be the only veteran here, but I'm probably the only Marine veteran here. And so I have a oh, pulling rank on us, Dan. No, no, I'm just saying <laughs> oh. I have a, 
I have a slight insight into the culture that they're pulling from directly from like an intimate perspective, especially since um, Al Matthews was an actual Marine. And so obviously he's using his own experience to be accurate about, you know, the nomenclature and phraseology and what he's doing. Um, and so there's something very realistic about what they did while still Cameron and everybody else really was maintaining this idea that Patrick described well, uh, that Spider-Verse does as well. And really taking the time to develop those characters and giving you a lot of background so that it explains their actions throughout the film and it makes sense for what they've laid out as those characters. Um, now, balance is something that I'm always looking for. It's part of my personality, but I look for it in film. And I think one of the things that makes this ensemble cast um, and the characters work so well is that they're really well balanced. Not just that their personalities are all different and you can sort of like either relate to a different one each time you watch the film or different types of people can relate to different characters, whether it's because they're, you know, they, they're the same like race or, you know, the people they grew up around or, or their attitudes or whatever it is. But also I think that um, the realism of each character and how they relate to the um, to the scenes of the interaction, for example, and this has been talked about, but they take um, Gorman has that like Gorman and um, Al Matthews have that classic clash of like the off the young officer that's inexperienced and the senior enlisted guy who is like really knows what is really going on, but yet he still has to respect the rank and the lieutenant is in charge, right? Um, that's a classic military thing that you hear about in real life. You see it in tons of movies, but I mean, that is everywhere that has not changed in 300 plus years. That's just the general structure of the military. And so you have all these, I, I don't want to call them tropes because trope sounds negative, but you have these realistic setup structures that are happening within the science fiction genre, the way the grunts are fucking around with each other and talking shit and doing exercise and all that. Like, you know, I wasn't in the infantry, but I know that's really common, which uh, regular Marines, but also in the infantry. And then you see characters like um, Bill Paxton who are kind of a little bit less believable as a Marine. Right. But, at the same time, it adds a lot of levity and really balances out those roles. You've got Hicks, who has that real ability to be that real serious, like, I, I want to do my job and I'm charismatic and all that, but he's not his, he's not super ego-driven. I know you guys have talked a lot about his character in relation to Ripley. And so there's this beautiful balance, I find, to those characters. There's even some throwaway ones, right? Not that they're bad, but there's a few Marines that die that you don't really get to know at all. There's a couple of background characters that die pretty quickly and not in the way uh, Apone does, where like he dies very quickly. He's one of the first Marines to die when they go into the, to the, um, to the station. But uh, you got a lot of development from him. He had a lot of uh, camera time. There's a few secondary characters that die quickly you didn't know a lot about. And so it's like, it's just this perfect balance of heroes dying, heroes surviving, secondary characters being around and not being around. And they really injected a lot of real life, both in the interactions between the characters, in the military aspect of it. And all of that makes everything that's happening more believable and more intense. Because when you see these Marines scared and like not having good discipline and just firing around and like freaking out, 
you're like, oh shit, like these are professional warriors and they're really freaked out by what's happening right now. And so that really sells the idea. All the, even when the aliens are off camera, right? And you're just looking at the Marines and they're just, and you just see their faces and they're running around firing. So there's just something about that where they really balanced all those elements out perfectly, in my opinion. To me, that's what really sells those characters as a group. God, Man, this floor is freezing. What do you want me to do? Fetch his slippers for you? Gee, would you, sir? I'd like that. Look into my eyes. And I think what I also love about that, going along with what you said, is that even Gorman, who is inexperienced, and there's this eye roll when they're like, how many drops is this for you, Lieutenant? And he goes, eight simulated, and then I think it was two, including the one two. that was actually real. Yeah. Um, but even when it's clear that no, it Gorman... No, it was dozens. It's 36, simulated. Simulated. Yeah, it was something like that. Oh, 38 mm -hmm. simulated. 38, yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, How many combat drops? <laughs> oh, How many man. combat drops? Um, <laughs> Two, including this one. Yeah. <laughs> See, the line just whoop the fucking do. Yeah, totally. It's, but yeah. what I love about these, though, is that Gorman, even though he's inept, even though he's clearly kind of he's fucked up the mission. I mean, he he should have went in and saved those Marines sooner. Ripley was kind of saying, we need to do something. We need to do something. Get your men out of there. He's not listening. And then she takes over. And then eventually he gets a concussion. He's out for a while. And then you see him, you know, finally revive. And he's got that, like, uh, bandana on his head or whatever it is kind of uh, for his wound. And he's kind of apologizing bandana. to Ripley. <laughs> whatever it is. That's got that, like, sick up. bandana on his head. Uh. He's, like, <laughs> riding his motorcycle. <laughs> But he's he's not even the bad like he's not a bad guy, but he's definitely adversarial. He's definitely his incompetence is almost a threat to them. But he, there's still sympathy for him where these characters, even as ridiculous as Hudson is and his ego, he's kind of like just he's so full of like pomp and circumstance. There's a humanity about him. And then there's even there's even a humanity about Burke, even though Burke is nefarious and he's there for for, you know, reasons that uh people don't kind of realize and they kind of put the get they put together the scheme that he's involved that he might kind of enact there's a humanity about him and even ripley when they're like okay let's waste him and she's like no he's got to go back like ripley understands that we can't become these things we can't just kill people um of, of course gorman is is there in the same capacity as uh as burke but just from an inverse right like gorman was put there by the company because he he would be a terrible commander for them and the mission would fail, which would allow Burke to impregnate them and get them back past quarantine, right? Like this, this whole thing. And so what happens is like, as you realize that as the movie's going on, as you realize this mission was clearly set up to be, to, to fail, you know, because this was, they were sent there not for, not to save anybody, you know, um, as you, as that starts to un unfold, you start seeing them as humans and not just as cogs of this Wayland Yutani machinery. And you realize, like, fucking, it's sad that Gorman is in that position, right? Like, sure, he's inept and sure, he's directly responsible for casualties, but he also, like, he, 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 he was out of his league and he was put there by a company that wanted him to be killed, right? You always were an asshole, Gorman. And likewise, you, you, you definitely see in Burke that he's not a, he's not like a sociopath, you know? Like, he's clearly feels some misgivings about what's going on, but his priorities are also clearly aligned with Wayland Jutani, and he's also terrified because in his mind, he's not, he's the only one surviving this thing, right? So, like, so, so he would be getting, he would be coming home as, like, the lone 
person who's not about to explode with a chestburster, you know, which is a pretty scary predicament to be in, I think. Um, I want to go back to something, Jamie, that you said about, um, well, actually, there's, okay, two things. Before I do, I, I also want to flag that we should discuss people like Van Leeuwen as well, because there's a lot of characters in Aliens that are not in the, in the, in the Colonial Marines. That, who I feel like we kind of skip over sometimes because the Marines are such a, are so charismatic. But like, you know, Van Leeuwen has maybe a minute and 40 seconds of screen time. And in that minute and 40 seconds, you learn a multitude about him and about the company and everybody at that table. But I'm telling you that those things exist. Thank you, Officer Ripley. That will be all. Please, you're not listening to me. Kane, the crew member. Kane, who went into that ship, said he saw thousands of eggs there. Thousands. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it! That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. You, 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 you never question for a moment that they don't really exist and that there's not a whole backstory behind that character and a whole future for that character. And I, I can't remember her name, but the, the, the woman who's smoking with the, with the pit, the bowl cut thing, um, you know, she and she's a complete character, even though she only has like six lines. You know, and every single level of this thing is is like that. In in the special edition too, you get to see the actual colony before things go to shit, and and you know, you, you totally get that sense too that it's populated by actors and by characters who really are feel real. You know, and it's not just the writing. You know, it's really easy to say Cameron wrote a great film because he obviously did. But it's not just the writing, and it's also not just the actors, because a lot of the actors in this thing went on to do very little else. You know, some of them were stunt people. Um, you know, some of them were just sort of character actors who ended up not coming back to it. Some of them grew up to become teachers. You know, like, it, it's not like this is a, it's not like the cast was loaded with these huge talents, you know? There was something about the way that they came together on set in that environment that made true magic happen. Um, so I want to talk about that. I also... uh I want to talk about uh, one. Just going back to Michael Bean for a second. I think that there is uh, there are these moments in Hicks's portrayal that make me like literally tear up sometimes when I watch it because it, it makes me realize how brilliant Michael Bean is as an actor and how I think underrated he is. Because of course, like he came into this late, right? It was James Remar who filmed scenes for this thing already, and one of them survives in the movie when they go into the hive. Like this was when they go into um, into uh, Hadley's Hope. So, like, he was coming in late. He didn't get to do the training with everybody. He was kind of, like, shoot in at the last minute. And even in that context, he created, in my opinion, the best performance outside of Ripley in the whole movie. Um, and it's in the consistency. It's in the consistency of his character. And how, even though there's an arc to it, you never question that arc. It feels like there's, like, this character is going on, a, on point A to point B, and along the way, great change happens, and that's the change that that character would go through. So, for example... He's the one who uh, who picks Newt up to put her on the on the table when they're scrolling through the map. Remember that? I never I never thought about that before. So he's the one who reaches for her right in the beginning. He's the first one to duck down into the air duct and to try to grab her out of it. He's the one who lifts Tells her up to play with the grenade. Yes, and you remember? Do you remember what? Do you remember what he says to her? He says, "Yes, he says, honey." He says, "Don't play with that, honey." Right? He treats her like. So like she's so special to him, you know, and, yep, he, like and he's he's the grunt, right? He's the guy who the whole time he falls asleep when the dropship goes down. He's he, you know he says none taken about you know the offense about being called a grunt, right? He's somebody who in any other movie, you know, he's like the the like the the 
the action hero, right? He's the taciturn, strong dude, right? But he's not in this movie. And that character is so complicated. And, and part of why he's so great, in addition to the fact that he's continuously deferential to Ripley, who he is immediately aware is a, is a much better warrior than he would ever be, right? Um, is the fact that he has no misgivings about it, right? He ends up with authority and he willfully gives it away. And he says, I am not the one who should be in control here. I will support what Ripley tells us to do because she knows what the fuck she's doing. And because there's more going on here than just a bunch of, of Marines sitting on a planet that's abandoned. We are cogs in a machine and we got to fucking survive this thing. Um, and I just, I, we were watching it the other night with, with the kids because it's, it's our son's, both of our son's favorite movie. And, um, and, and when, when Hicks lifts her up and puts her on the table, I, I found myself literally tearing up and I was thinking, fuck, that's amazing. Like in any other movie that they would have made a big deal about that, right? It would have been like, look at, look at the brave warrior, like lifting the little girl up, but he's treating her like she's his daughter, you know? And the only other person who has that bond with her is Ripley. And that's why when they have that little tension that, you know, Ripley and Hicks have, it feels so real because it's like they're operating on that wavelength together where they're, they are seeing humanity in the midst of horror. And and it's just a brilliant character, I think. One of the things that makes the movie special is the whole the whole movie just feels organic. It feels real. The way it's it's shot, the way everyone interacts, it just and like you guys were saying it, it just feels like you're you're part of it. And you know, you just can't escape it. Once you're in, you're in. And like Jamie, you were you were talking about that the that that uh the tracking shot with the um it's not a dolly. It's a uh, steadicam. So, like you know, the steadicam shot at the beginning of Alien that we that we brought up many times, where it's it's going through the quarters of the Nostromo into the cockpit of the Narcissus. You know that whole that whole sequence there. Um, it's mirrored in that sequence you were talking about in Aliens, where it tracks them out of the hypersleep bay into the cafeteria, and it goes through, and you see Vasquez doing pull-ups, and you see people interacting, and you see Farrell walking around in the back, and you see snow, and you see you see everybody or frost, you see, <laughs> snow, you see everybody, um, you know, interacting in this real environment, and the camera is not like butting into any conversations, it's not being intrusive, it's just a fly on the wall, it's like cinema verite in a Hollywood blockbuster. So by the time you're sitting in the cafe. Like, you're, you feel like I, I'm one of the troops now, you know? And I think that uh, the That's way the line... Hall, Patrick. Yeah. Oh, pulling rank. <laughs> the, ca- the cafe. <laughs> the cafe. <laughs> Thank you the for your Denny's service. Walk into. Guess you don't like the cornbread either. No, <laughs> the, the way that uh, they deliver their lines, I also think is really important to note that in movies these days, it's kind of like, moment, here's the line. Whereas the lines, they just felt natural. They felt like they were just kind of, this is how people talk. Alien and Aliens, and certainly Alien 3, but those two films really captured how people talk and how they interact with each other. And we don't, you know, there's there's ways that all of us together um, get along that we won't even think about. We We just are who we are. Whereas when it's on, I think, lesser writers, lesser directors, they turn those moments into something that's not recognizable or identifiable. It's uh, where it's almost even hard to describe the, the ease of, of comfort they have with each other. But I also think that that goes to James Cameron and having them all get together for two weeks, certainly the Marines and train and uh, find yeah, a kind of, a, a, yeah, a sense of camaraderie. He kind of uh, Ridley Scott did that with alien. They are all together for two or three weeks before filming even began. And they created an atmosphere with those sets, much like Cameron did in upon reflection with aliens to create a sense of we're all in this together. And you felt like it, the camera was all in this together. 
and uh, the it's dialogue like a documentary. Yeah, and the dialogue wasn't overly self-important either. The dialogue was yep. normal dialogue, and I, it's it's the type of film that you just don't see anymore. It's it's very very difficult, which is why I think, for first of all, good science fiction is very hard to do. Second of all, good dialogue is hard to do. Period. I I don't know. Sometimes it's like, oh hey, that that looked really great, but the dialogue was shit, or that it the dialogue was great, but it didn't look that great. Like for instance, uh, I can't remember the name of the writer. Oh, I don't even remember the name of the movie, but really famous writer, famous movie. Uh, the Spanish Prisoner, actually, that's what it was. Really well written, well acted, but it looked boring as fuck. Um, and that's kind of the, 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 the trade-off sometimes. So Cameron, he just he did his homework. He, it, it's it's mind blowing how much he was able to bring forth from that the actors from the the sets, uh, the environment. Even the sets weren't these. It wasn't this. Oh, look at these sets. Look how amazing these sets are. They were just there and they walked in yep. there and we were with them and we were going on, you know, a uh, step by step. It even was a little bit different than Alien where we were in a completely unknown environment. So there's that sense of awe. Whereas with Aliens, it was a very familiar environment. Even though it was on another planet, we've seen things like that before. Um, so I, the familiarity of of the actors and and their acting and the dialogue and the atmosphere and the energy that they're creating is, is singular. Now, we should, we should point out, Dan is connecting from work right now, so he's going to have to go pretty soon. Before he goes, I, I have a couple questions for Dan about this. I'm wondering, given given your background sure. um, in, in the military and in, in environments sort of like this, what are some things about the the marines and like the ways in which they operate um both like tactically and also just sort of as as a unit that that felt like especially genuine you kind of alluded to some of this earlier but i'm wondering are the things when you're watching it where you're like oh they really got that right and are the things when you're watching it where you're like it's it's actually nothing like that you know in terrestrial marines uh terrestrial marines. um yeah i mean nothing really jumps out of me as glaring that they did wrong if, if there's so much that they did right that really that's what overcomes me when i'm watching these scenes but um yeah to very briefly give you some examples i mean i I talked about the you know lieutenant versus master sergeant type of interaction and on top of that there's a very human level that anybody can that anybody in leadership in any environment can relate to even if you work at a coffee shop at at a uh like in a cubicle at an office and it's trying to wing it when you don't know everything that you're doing and trying to keep like your men and women's respect well, so it's like that ego balance. And you can see that with Gorman when he's like arms across trying to look tough in the briefing. And, um, you know, and Hudson is just like talking shit and just being like, this is a chicken shit outfit. And this is a bullshit mission, you know, and he's like, you know, when he tells him to secure that shit and whatever. Um, and I think that's really realistic. There's a tension in that type of leadership, especially in the military, especially with a bunch of men like you don't want to look stupid. And like you don't know what you're talking about and you don't know what you're doing when you're in charge. And you're it's the most extreme example because you're going to be in charge when you're pointing to things and say, go that way. And you're literally sending people to their death. So I think it's just an extreme example of something that lots of people can relate to, even if you're not in the military. So there's that aspect that I was thinking about while you guys were talking. Um, the sort of the classic line that's just my favorite line of the whole movie where um, where. um He's talking to Vasquez 
and he asks her, you know, have you ever been mistaken for a man? And she says, no, have you? You know, I mean, that's like... You're just too bad. <laughs> yeah, and that's just like between the shit talking from Bill Paxton and then Wierzbowski, like, you know, giving her a high five or, or, you know, shaking hands with her and saying, you're just too bad. Like, it's that level of like shit talking and fucking with each other and camaraderie all wrapped in one. You're competing with each other, right? Physically and, and performance wise and your technical performance and at your job. And don't forget, like, even in the infantry, all these people have different jobs. You have like a machine gunner, a smart gunner, a regular rifleman, a squad leader, and all those jobs train slightly differently. So you're competing with each other in general physical prowess, but you also have different technical skills that you're bringing to the table. And the success of the mission depends on everyone doing their job properly. And you do all have slightly different jobs. Um, so I think that was done really well, of course. And when you guys were talking about the difference between, you know, Cameron's writing and his direction versus the actors, who was responsible for this being done so well. And, uh, I think, uh, I'm sure you mentioned it in other shows, but just to bring it up here, the fact that Cameron famously shot the opening sequence of them waking up at the end of filming so that the actors had all this time spent together. I mean, imagine how much they were fucking with each other off screen and, you know, playing pranks on each other and talking shit and sleeping together and waking up and all of that. And so that was a great move by the director. And, you know, we talk about it on Blade Runner all the time, what Ridley Scott was responsible for and what genius he had to pull the best performance. We talked about Kubrick. He does it with his actors. And I think Cameron has to be commended for what specific decisions he made as a director, not just as a writer, to get the best performance out of his actors. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the things that I notice. Uh, one thing I wanted to really point out that is something that isn't talked about. We have talked about it a bit. Just the dynamic between it's, it's a, a, a co-ed environment. There's men and there's women and they live together. They shower together. Even though we don't see it, we we assume that um, a character like Vasquez, who for all intents and purposes, she comes off like a kind of a classically butch lesbian. You know, there's no there's no bones about it. That's just how she is perceived. That's how she acts it. Um, what I love, one thing I love is that you don't hear any of that, like, there's none of that. Uh, I mean, there's one thing that Hudson said, like, illegal aliens signed up, um, which was kind Fuck of a dig you, to her. man. Anytime, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> well, and that's kind of a dig to who she is a little bit. But aside from that, there's no question, like, everyone is equal. Um, there, there's just no question as to who's who everyone is a Marine and they're there to do a job and there's just respect. There's a level of respect that even the audience gives. Like that's one thing that continues to fascinate me about aliens is how much respect Vasquez is giving. It doesn't matter who you're, where you're from, even though Vasquez is portrayed, like I said, as this very stereotypically butch lesbian in the eyes of fandom, which is pre predominantly men, she's fucking badass. Why is she badass? Because we know her character. And I think that cannot be stated enough. And even though the and show is more about the, the supporting characters, uh, even Ripley kind of falls in, in that same category where it doesn't, no one gives a shit that Ripley's a woman because her character is awesome. And that's the genius of James Cameron. It was about the character of these people, even though, right. uh, uh, Hudson's an asshole. He's he has a level of respect that we give him. Um, we know oh, when yeah. he's fighting his Thank last bit, there's the respect there for what he's doing. He respects Ripley. He really does. He never was disrespectful to her. You know, I just yeah. think it's one of those things that people don't really understand or they don't really talk about. He's coming in. 
I feel safer already. I mean, it's one of the better parts of Aliens is that the whole thing, again, not to repeat, but it feels natural. There's no, Cameron doesn't go out of his way to make statements. They're there. That's just what everyone is just a character. They're not symbolizing this or this. He's not like getting a soapbox for this or doing this. It's just a fucking movie. And the way it's done, sure, there are, there are these little parts you could pick out, but it, the whole thing just feels organic. There's nothing forced. There's nothing, you know, stuffed in your face. It's, it's, a, it's a movie. And he doesn't try to do too much. And it just works. Yeah, and, and also, like, and I'm not saying this is where Jamie was going necessarily, but I want to counter also that the comments Hudson makes, the illegal alien and making fun of whether, like, she's ever been mistaken for a man, those are still within the realm of total, like, racial and sexual banter that happens oh, amongst peers who totally respect and love each other. Uh, I have yeah. no doubt at any point in the script or, you know, in the storyline and the characters that Hudson would die for Vasquez just as quick as he'd yeah. die for Hicks. Or even Gorman, if there was, if there was, if if it came down to it, you know, that's the type it, of racial humor that happens all the time. Like, oh, that's the Puerto Rican, that's the Mexican. Like, we did that in the military all the time. But yeah. I'll tell you what, they, they trained us right off the bat in the Marine Corps. Like the first day we stepped in, people from all walks of life, poor people, not that many rich people, but you know, like definitely different social backgrounds, different. You know, I've never, I hadn't met people from South Dakota until I was in the Marine Corps. They're from all over the U.S. And one of the first things they tell you, which is boilerplate standard shit drill instructors say, is there are no black, white, brown Marines. You're dark green and light green. But I don't want to hear any, like, racist remarks or trying to pick on somebody for the race. Like, that shit ain't happening here. And so you still get the racial humor, of course, that you get in any sort of uh, less PC workspace, construction workers and mining and military, that kind of stuff. But it's definitely, to me, I see it as being out of love, and I still get the same yeah, thing it, out of those characters. Yes, it's, it's a form. It's a form of bonding. I mean, I have, well, I have a United Nations of friends, and we bust each other chops all the time with stuff you guys wouldn't even want to hear. But it's what you do when you're close to someone. You give a shit. You're comfortable enough where you can make those jokes. It's natural. It's what happens. Right. Right. But you can't there's do that unless, that. But unless there's a base level of trust, right? And so the fact that they're able that the fact that they're able to have that kind of banter means that they trust each other, right? And so it's, a, it's a shorthand when you're watching them go back and forth. And I don't think I don't think anybody, literally anybody watching Aliens, thinks for a second that Hudson is actually you know racist, or thinks for a second that um. I guess it's it's mostly Hudson that that Hudson like you know hates lesbians, <laughs> like every, everybody watching that thinks like this is how he functions in this team. Like he is the ball buster, and then he gets in trouble for it. But even when he gets in, like what I love is that like when Apone you know yells at Hudson Excellent. when he says like you secure that shit. You, even he's doing it out of love, right? He's like, come here. Exactly. And then he, he, I get the sense that he gives him a noogie. <laughs> come you know, that, here. Yeah, come here. Yeah. <laughs> then he comes over and he's just like, you piece of crap, let's go, you know? There's like never – and then the exception of that is Gorman, right? Because Gorman's the outsider. So when Gorman says, all right, Which is different. listen up, you know, I want it by the numbers. And he gives this whole speech and he's like clenching his jaw. Everyone eye rolls. <laughs> and, right, because he's so clearly the outsider, like, right? Oh, God. He's it's so like, whatever, clearly, dude. He so clearly does not have that established base level of trust, which says, again – fucking screenwriting 101 you get so much information from that right you get the information that obviously he's inexperienced this foreshadowing that something's going to go wrong you find out that you you automatically know that he's a plant by the company because he's corporate and because he hasn't been there before and you and that he's a bad leader and that there's this antagonistic relationship because it's juxtaposed against the comfort level of the marines who have been bantering like crazy that whole time right like for example just 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 tonight um 
you know, before we recorded, I came from a choir rehearsal and I've been singing with this choir for a very long time. And like, and you guys know my natural self is, is usually I like to have, to have fun and, you know, be kind of loud and laugh a lot and like, and, and, and I feel completely comfortable doing that in that choir, you know? And we were like laughing really hard tonight. And I was like, I'm so glad I'm with people who accept my sense of humor and who like appreciate it. And I feel like I can say ridiculous things and they'll be like, Oh, it's okay. Cause like, you know, we love each other. We understand each other, you know? And when you have those moments, you feel really secure and you feel like you can do really difficult things because you won't be judged if you fuck up. Yeah. It's a, it's a great metric really for their relationships. I mean, we say this all the time, but if you notice, no one breaks Gorman's balls to his face. They complain about him and talk shit about him behind his back, which is normal, right? Everybody bitches about their incompetent boss, whatever. But nobody tries to crack a joke with Gorman, aside from the fact that there's a chain of command. And, you know, if you're not friends, you're not going to do that with an officer. But we talk about that all the time in the control tower. It's kind of like when someone gets a nickname and they're getting their balls busted or whatever, um, you know, we're like, hey, trust me. It's a good thing that you have a nickname because it means people like you. If nobody's talking shit to you, yep. it means nobody likes yep. you. You know, it's, it's a good it's a good yep. metric for that. And also, you can't get away with doing that shit unless you know people really well. Like, we were just saying about the trust thing. So, like, you, you see that it's a shorthand for the fact that they've been doing this shit all over the galaxy for a long time. You know, is it just another bug hunt? Like, they, they clearly, like, they know what they're doing, you know? So, you, <coughs> yep. you don't question Jesus. their competency either when they're going into this. Even though they kind of look ragtag and they're barfing because they just woke up and they're, you know, throwing cornbread. Like, when it comes down to it, they're going to be good at what they do. A brilliant stroke of genius from James Cameron, and I think one, you know, we see in our um, social media climate right now is you'll see posts for like, uh, like for say Hollywood, the reporter or variety, and they'll be like, this movie is going to include this person, like this type of person, whether it's LGBT, ethnic minority, and it seems to kind of not enrage people, and uh, this is kind of a touchy subject, but it's important. Um, and a lot of people kind of roll their eyes like, oh boy, here we go. And I think part of the genius of James Cameron is that he included all of so many different types of people, so many different types of people without fanfare. He exactly. just, he included Nailed people. It. They were people, they were full, like they, they had character, they had, um, heart and they were who they were and we accepted them for who they were. Yeah, they were, they're just characters in a movie. It's not, hey, we're doing this. Come see our movie. Hey, yeah, let's get attention. Yeah. They're, and, and, they're, and just, they're, they're, not, they're not being used as pawns. Yes, or as, yes. Or as they're, they're just characters in a movie, which is all anything should be. If it's a yeah. heroine's there, it's a heroine. You're going to go, hey, look, we have a female hero. Uh, okay, we get it. Yeah. But you don't yeah. give a shit about her. There's no, Who cares? there's no affirmative action in James Cameron. It's just happens yeah. organically, and it's just and right. he's been doing it a long time. And he, and he also writes these characters, you know, sometimes you, you – uh, some shows or movies or whatever will include, I don't know, some, whether it's an ethnic minority or someone, a part of a, a smaller community and there'll be stereotypical. James Cameron doesn't make those decisions. Like he doesn't, he decides I'm not going to do that. He just makes them people. He, he makes them characters who have to earn our trust. And by the end of aliens, they've all earned our trust. It right. doesn't matter who they were. It didn't matter where they right. come, came from. And again, what's divisive about, all of these announcements about we're including this type of person. We're including this type of person for the first time. We're including this type of person. And granted, I'm saying this as someone who's biracial and gay. Uh, it pisses me off too. Not because they're um, 
not because they're including that that person. So you're making a big fucking deal they're, out of it. Yeah, they're making a big deal out of it as opposed to just show us yeah, character. It feels show like us, pandering, right? Yeah, and, and you're yeah, saying exactly the point. The you're saying the point is this inclusion aspect. When when the point is the character, right? The the point is what that character represents. It's not it's not that you're yep. able to check off a box on something, right? And, it, and so who if, gives if, a if shit you, if, if, the, if announce, the character sucks? Sorry, you know. Go ahead, Dave. No, say so if you if you announce whatever, you're going to have a, you know, a, a bisexual character or a transgender or a gender. That's all people are going to think about. It could be the most dynamic character, but all people are going to think is, oh well, you announced it. Who gives a shit? Just put him in the movie and let people figure it out later. Yeah. Because by the end, if they're if they're well written and well acted, no one's gonna give a shit. Right, and because yeah, exactly. when you have a straight when you have a straight white dude in a movie, he doesn't come out and get a boner the first time he sees a woman and go, "Oh, I'm straight." It's it's not the point. Isn't that he's a straight guy, right? The point is his character, <laughs> and it does such a disservice, I think, to people in these intersectionalities and, and you know various types of minorities in, in the world. If the character becomes just about that. Now that being said, the dialogue that can come out of that is <coughs> what is where that lies, right? People talk about Ripley as a great heroine and as representing a, a big step in, in feminism, not because the movie is smashing you over the head with it, but because we've realized that that's what she represents, you know, in a social in a social context outside of the film. But like, but if the movie wasn't marketed, it wasn't it wasn't a vehicle for her. And what she would represent is a vehicle for that character. Um, now, before we get further into this, Dan has to get back to work. Uh, and I, I just want to just personally say this was great fun having you on. I'm so glad you finally got to come on Perfect Organism. I feel yes, like, thanks for coming. You know, we, was we, a pleasure to Yeah, end. thank you guys. I've been, thank you. I've been really excited to participate. So thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'd uh, be happy to come on again if uh, the time comes. And you were like our visiting expert. <laughs> we actually had like somebody who could talk <laughs> yeah, about that was, Marines. That's pretty awesome. So it's nice you. to have some kind of background when you're dealing with, you know, all the music background and film background. At least I've done something. Yeah, <laughs> I ain't, I ain't got shit. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have passion, Dave. All right, you thanks, guys, buddy. Well, uh, good talk. Enjoy the rest of the episode, and all I'll right. catch up with you guys later. All right, thanks. All right, Dave. see you later, see you, man. Teach you how to shoot a basketball or throw a football. Or... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> So, so I, I wanted to kind of do a couple little lightning round things with you guys. Um, I want to know who. So, Dave, who is your favorite character in the film? Other than, we just don't talk about Ripley. Who's your favorite other character in the film? Motherfucker, um, this changes constantly. Um, it's gotta does, be it, like, does it really? Because because it changes for me too, depending on where I am in my life. It, yeah, exactly. Like my favorite alien characters change as the years go by. But for aliens, man, I just think it's always been Hicks that kind of. Just going about your day, the reluctant leader uh, type thing. I've always um, just always felt a connection to, and just you know, um, ever since I think ever since I saw the movie, I think that Aliens. It's always I think it's the one movie where the my favorite character hasn't really wavered too much. I think it's it's always been Hicks. There's just so much there to so much there to like. Well, what, why do you think? Like, what what is it about him that resonates with you so much? Um, just that he just goes about his day his everyday operations just doing what he needs to do being there for his whatever his um his teammates his co-workers it's just kind of a i just kind of appreciate that i just think that's the way it's done though i kind of have hudson's mouth um i kind of have you know hicks work ethic so i have a kind of like a little, little little mix of those two that's cool so so you so you kind of you see some of yourself in him and 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 his consistency 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially just, I mean, I considering you guys know all I do is work, and um, right. Hicks is just the way he he does is something I've always um, liked because I was never a leader or never thought I was, and as I got older, I'm like I kind of am. So I always kind of were drawn to reluctant leaders who weren't quite really ready to admit it. So I've always, you know, I had something with Hicks. I've always found myself attached to. Now, when you were a kid, um, was he also the first character that really stuck out to you? Yes. Interesting. Jamie, what about you? I would say it would be Bishop, to be honest with you, um, because there's this struggle for Bishop to win Ripley's trust. Um, and I think the audience is as a little bit distrusting of Bishop as Ripley is, uh, to be honest. She doesn't know why he's there. Um, she, she wasn't. She wasn't told. So Rip. Uh, so Bishop has. Uh, he has something to prove. Um, not that he has something to prove, but you see it in him in his performance, even as a synthetic, that he really wants to assure Ripley that he is yeah. here for her, that he is here to ensure her safety. Um, and you know, Ripley's distrusting of him until the very end. Really, you know, he takes off. She thinks he's like, "Fuck you, goodbye." God but he damn doesn't. you! <laughs> uh, but. He's just a fascinating character. Uh, Lance Henriksen played him note perfect. Um, oh my he God, had yeah. a little bit of he had a little bit of the stoicism of Ash. There's a little <laughs> bit of Ash there, just to kind of the he's kind of when he's dissecting the the face hugger and uh, what's, what's that guy's name? He's like, hello, Bishop. Oh yeah, um, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Not Wierzbowski. Uh, um, uh, Fra- no. Crow. Just get up here. What's his name? Is it not Crow? No, that's not no, oh, fuck. No. What is his Dietrich? name? Is Dietrich. It Dietrich. Is it Dietrich? Is it Dietrich? No, Dietrich's the woman. I don't know. Oh Anyways. my god! Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we, we, have, we have to forget. So it's not Frost. It's not Pharaoh. Spunkmire. 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 Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Which is Which a great is a name, name, by the way. It is a great <laughs> name. It's Spunkmire. And see, so Spunkmire also he has like two lines in the whole movie, right? And and yep, both of them yep. are great, right? When he gets back on the yeah. ship, and then that other <laughs> yeah. one, like this is this 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 character who like you know functions so minimally in this thing, but we remember both of his appearances, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, his his interaction there with, with Bishop and uh, Bishop's response, he's kind of in the zone. But Bishop is really, he becomes like, by the end of Alien three uh, of Alien Resurrection, oh my God, by the end of Alien. Yeah. Of what movie are we talking about? <laughs> by, by, the by the end, end of, of Alien, Freaky Friday. Yeah. <laughs> by the end of Aliens, mail. he's like a part of us. <laughs> you know, he's like this. Like he's one of us. He's he's the rescuer. He's he's everything. And then I mean I know we're talking about aliens, but by Alien Three when we see him again, it's like almost like oh my God, it's Bishop. Like he's this like sacred territory. I mean he's the last holdover from Aliens. And Ripley's talking to him. By the time we see him in Alien Three, it's this this religious experience almost that we're able yeah. to see him and talk to him again. Um, we are we almost become. Ripley in that scene, hearing his voice, seeing him again, he's kind of at the end of his life. At at any rate, I think Lance Henriksen did a, an incredible job balancing the the protocols of a, a synthetic, but who wants to be human or wants to kind of assure his human owners or whatever that he is there to protect them. And I think it's he's understated. He plays the role very kind of quietly. Um, but even the scene where he's being he's going down the tube and there's Vasquez and Ripley and they seal up the tube and he 
and they're they're putting the piece back down to so to salt to uh like what do they call it solder it or whatever and he goes soldering. they're welding it <laughs> welding it sorry it take a um, long time was, to solder that yeah thing. um <laughs> <laughs> but what do you remember what he says to vasquez i may be synthetic uh, but good I'm luck stupid no watch your fingers Oh yeah! Oh, oh yeah! yeah, one, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's the last thing he says. Yeah. We're close. I also yeah, like right. the little. I also like the little touch when he, they give him the gun and he just kind of looks at it and just gives it back. Yeah, yeah. That's in the yes, standard, right? yes, yeah, yes. Um, and that's a, right. these are all moments that say so much about these fucking characters. Yeah. That's and, why and this yep, is a great yes. movie. Yep. These are all every yeah. single one of these things. It's not just like witty writing. It is character building, right? Yeah. There's no yep. wasted opportunity in this whole fucking movie to build these characters out. And that's yeah, there's amazing. no there's no throwaway uh, lines or movements. Everything has a fucking purpose. Even like a moment like so. So, for example, when Hudson runs the bypass, but like that, that's a moment that I always look forward to because the, you're watching it and you're like, oh, my God, why the fuck does Hudson still have a job? Like, he's just like clearly like he doesn't want to be there. He's complaining about everything. He's just like disruptive. Like, why would they? And then and then he's the one who runs the bypass and they get into the colony because of his technical skill set and because he's the technician. Right. And you're like, oh, that's right. Like, he's a capable soldier. Right. So even before he has a chance to redeem himself and even before he has a chance to prove himself as like a really valiant warrior, he's the guy that everybody stops and they, they can't get in. You know, Vasquez can't go in with that smart gun until Hudson runs his bypass. And you realize, like, even these characters who... To me, a big a big appeal about these characters is that they all challenge the assumptions that we make about them the first time we see them, right? We we see Hudson, and we make all of these assumptions, and we go up that ladder of inference, and we think we know exactly who this guy is. And then he continually challenges that, you know? And when he panics and when he has a breakdown, it fits into the context of his character because his character is kind of inherently erratic, right? And then he overcomes that, and that's his heroism, you know? That's why he's special. I think like a, a friend of mine said um, when we used to watch Aliens Ad Noise when we were younger about Hudson. Hudson, one of those guys when he's sort of figuring out, you give him something to do and he's fine. Right, right, and right. You notice that the right. more you give him like, you know, scan the area, run the bypass, he's fine. He's getting something yeah. to do. And he's fucking totally. good at it. He's really then, good. Yeah. That one yeah. scene, kind of classic scene where he's freaking out and Ripley's like, Hudson, Hudson. Um, She goes, I need you. I need your help. And she goes, She's just kind of pep talking him. They're gonna come in here. They're gonna come in here. They're gonna kill us. <laughs> and then, but then you see Bill Paxton as Hudson do this like shake up. He kind of like, and then he breathes, and he's like, okay, yeah. okay, okay, I'm on it. And there's a level of respect there. Ripley's not in the military. Ripley's, for what we know, have never been in the military. She has that. no clout. I love that. And he's like, yes, I'm gonna do what you say. Yes, I'll acquiesce because mm-hmm. I respect you because you came and saved us. And, you know, in, 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 so, in um, so many other movies, we would see that happen and people would go like, why would they trust her? She's not in the military. Like, why? Yeah. But there's not a chance to <laughs> ask those questions about this because the characters are so solid that you never question why it's they do It's so well you know? done. For example, in a movie well, like Covenant, which I obviously love and which Dave, I know you like a lot and Jamie, you partially like. There, there are there are character decisions in that that I find myself having to defend quite a lot because the characters are not solidly enough written or portrayed, in my opinion, some of them, where it's unquestionable. So when Orm looks at the egg, I know that they overmorph. I, I have a million reasons why he does that, and I and I have never for a second wavered in believing that it was a justified thing for that character to do at that point in time. But to get to that point, I had to think about it, you know? In Aliens, right. it is just bing, bang, boom, bing, boom. It's all these decisions that make so much sense that you don't even stop and question it because it's it feels inevitable. That's what sets Aliens and Alien apart in terms of character 
there no character needs defense there you don't have oh, to right. defend anyone you don't have to defend anyone in alien and i obviously this is not a conversation about having to defend other characters but the brilliance of aliens is that it's so well made it's so well written and well acted the energy is so palpable you don't need i mean okay do do certain people start to pick apart things in aliens in some groups or whatever sure they do generally people don't even question it um and then as you get to alien 3 People are questioning what are these characters doing? They're throwaway, blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of questions. But Aliens is airtight. And uh, it's the litmus test for how you write characters. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why uh, so many of the characters in the subsequent films struggle. Because that's the litmus test. And none of them is reaching it. They don't have the kind of writing that Aliens and Alien had. Um, and it's just a testament to how smart a filmmaker James Cameron is. And I, I am a Cameron fan. Like I've seen avatar. Do I think it's the best w- movie in the world? No, but do I think that the characters are believable and it's an enjoying enjoyable ride and that it's really well written? Fuck. Yes. Um, I concur. Uh, oh, I, I disagree mean, I, big time, but we I, I, mean, I think it. The, the, the story is shit. Uh, but yeah, I think the characters uh, are I, shit too in that movie, but that's, 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 I, that's, I don't that's a separate that. question. Um, they work within we'll, the world. We'll do of Patreons. Patreons. Yeah, oh, yeah. But that world doesn't make any sense. Uh, whatever. And, and the characters anyways, operating within it don't make any sense. Anyways, uh, I, I, to point to kind of pivot back to something that we were talking about, certainly Dave and I were discussing um, via text a couple months ago, was that James Cameron made a film where every character mattered. Every character mattered. And that's what also sets aliens apart from everything else. And it sets aliens apart from. Uh, movies, science fiction films that come out today, and even some of the trouble that we have with Covenant, and definitely the trouble we have with Prometheus, is that a lot of people felt like all the characters didn't matter. Um, and to have a film where we can turn it on, and, it, and your your boys can sit down and watch it, and they can invest, uh, that's why this film is endearing. That's why this right. film is heralded and put on this pedestal after 33 years, is it 33 years yeah. this year? Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, and, uh, and that's why I think there's so much letdown, um, is because we have this, these essentially the first two films are on a pedestal that no other film has reached. Yeah. You had one of the most influential sci-fi fan films ever made. I think it's followed up with the most successful, influential sequel ever made. After that, it's like, uh, (laughs) what? (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was, uh, what do you call that? Uh, when it's it's bottled, it's not magic in a bottle. What do they call that when you lightning in a bottle? Lightning in a bottle. It was it's it lightning was, in a magical the, bottle. Is what that is. Lightning in a magical, <laughs> fabulous lightning. butthole. But also, <laughs> the, I think I think it's worth <laughs> noting that these films came out at a time. So you have Alien in '79, but you have Aliens in '86. This was the '80s were this time and place for movies. Um, that hasn't really been replicated. We are the first generation of people to grow up with the movies the way that we did. Our parents didn't grow up that way. Our parents didn't grow up with movies in the house. They had to go see movies at the theater. They didn't have what we had. They didn't have like Blockbuster Video or Errol's Video or all of these video places where we can go and rent some of your favorite movies, So, which kind of made our childhood this magical thing i don't think i would have seen alien if it hadn't been for the video store which which i, I brought my first ever appearance on perfect organism I, I brought this up but i'm going to come back to it because it's been a while since then 
there was a, there was like a local independent video store in my downtown called Now Playing, which was subsequently raided by the FBI because it was a money laundering operation, which is part of oh. what's, what's exciting about it. <laughs> and the guy that worked there was a dude named Tony who had aviators and a mullet. Tony Gogel. Let's <laughs> say it was t- t- Tony Montana. Um, and uh, it, it, he was raided by the FBI, so maybe he was. Anyway, but 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 Tony would like you know he just like had all these uh, these cases out, and I know, you know like Dave and I are big uh, horror fans. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit. Mm. A lot of the horror movies that I've seen in my life have been because the cover art has been so fucking cool for them, you know. Yes. And, and the VHS, oh, yeah. the VHS box covers are just so fascinating. And Alien, I got because of the cover of it, you know, because I was a kid and I rid, rode my bike there, <clears> and I saw this thing, and I was like, what is what is this movie, you know? And he's like, oh, that's real scary. You should be careful with that one. And I was like, I'll take it, you know what I mean? Um, and that, at that, the experience of going and renting something like that is, uh, a, f- a big formative aspect of our generation, I think. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen, you know, as, as our, as our, you know, children's generation grows up and, and what, what they're going to kind of gravitate towards is their nostalgic things. Cause it is, it is fundamentally very, it's very different now with streaming and, and things like that. It is very different. And I think part of that is there was, uh, going to the f- movies and also renting movies was an event. Yeah. Uh, you, you invited your friends over, um, you, or you, all your friends went to the movies or you went to the movies with your parents. It was this, this sacred thing in a way, and we're going to pay this much money and we're going to get treats at the box office, or we're going to order pizzas and we're going to watch aliens tonight. Come over guys. You pick up and, a couple I mean, pizzas, a couple two liter bottles of Coke, totally and watch aliens. That's like the That's, best. I mean, I had that night 35 times in my childhood. And I think the difference here is is we didn't have the type of content that's available to people now. We hold movies sacred because movies were sacred for us. Movies were this thing where we could – like, I mean, I remember going into Blockbuster as well and just – I remember looking, always going over to the sci-fi section and seeing all three Alien movies and those black covers. Yes, with the, yes. With the, squ- with the square boxes. Yeah, the, sil- saw, the silver embossing saw on something it. and yep. I just remember thinking – Oh, I can't wait to to rent this again. And I, I just remember. Oh, you crack open that clamshell, the fucking plastic. Yep. Oh, yep. the best. Yeah, and people would come up to me like just the way that I grew up, which is another story. They'd be like, "Hey, Jamie, we heard you rented this movie. Can we borrow it when you're done?" You yes, know? yes. <laughs> um, so you were lending rentals, and you're like, "I got to get it back." Oh God, by, I remember those days. I got to get it back by Friday. So, <laughs> so you get needed. it back to the video store. Or, yeah, and then they'd be yeah. like, "Oh no, we'll return it." And I said, "Oh hey, well," or they people would be like, "Oh, I." tell people oh, I'm going to the blockbuster and they're like, Oh, Hey, can you rent this for us? We really want to watch this movie. So you'd be renting movies for other people and movie rentals were like, well, at that point they're like $3, sometimes $4 new releases. That's, that's, were, some, that's some money when you're fucking 11 years old. That's like, and that's that created serious. community too. Like yeah. there was a real sense of community around the movie going experience. That's kind of, it's still there to some degree in terms of going to the movies, but a lot of that's disappearing. Whereas you're just watching, you're binge watching a show by yourself for three, two days in your bedroom. The movie experience is is very different. So it will be interesting to see how this generation growing up now, how they view films, if they touch right. us, touch them the way that they've touched us. And I, I don't, don't want to be all just like the, old fogey about it, you know, because because I think it's, I will. It's, 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 it's easy. For, well, you are an old fogey. I think it's easy oh. for us. Your mom's an old fogey. I think it's easy for us to sit here and assume that we had it the best because we you know really hold because because you know why because we're here at fucking 10 30 at night on a weeknight talking about the movies that we love on a podcast and this is like the third time we've done it in a week you know what i mean like so for us obviously that was a sacred childhood experience that was formal 
it was it was for it was seminal to our formation as adults, right? So like, who knows what's going to happen with our kids' generation? I I can speak personally that mov- movies are uh, one of the 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 you know the the things around which are my kids' lives uh, pivot. Like that is a huge part of their upbringing, and I think that you know a lot of kids are probably being raised in households where film is considered important, you know, and that's probably there too. Um, so. That being said, though, film was not like a big thing in my childhood home. That was something that me and my friends were really into, you know. And and Alien, which was the one that I saw that I fell in love with first when I was seven, was a big deal. But Aliens was the one that I would fucking rent all the time. And then you would show me up too. and it would be out. And I'd be like, who the yep. fuck? And it was always my friend Sam. And so then Sam and I would be like, well, can I, can we like, can I go over your house on my bike? And then we would watch it there. And like, you know, when you're a kid and, and you get that VHS tape, Aliens was like the one to have. And those characters... Yeah live on in our hearts and in our minds as real people, you know, who who have grown and changed alongside us. And and I always point out Newt um, as an example of this. So Newt, you know, like Carrie Han was chosen partly because she didn't smile during her audition, right? Because um, a lot of child actors were kind of trained to be more declamatory and they were trained to do commercials and things like that. And so a lot of the kids would read the lines and they'd be cutesy about it or they'd like show a dimple and they'd like wink, you know, or something like that. And and Carrie Henn was not. She was very deadpan and very real, and that was part of why she was chosen for the role, which, of course, she ended up winning a Saturn Award for, along with Jeanette Goldstein. Um, and I feel like uh, when I was a kid, when I was when I was that seven- or eight-year-old kid on my bike, I saw Newt as, like, I had, like, a crush on her because she was, like, an older kid than I was, you know? And so I, I remember that feeling of being like, oh, she's like this, like, amazing, like, kid. She's like this older girl who's, like, pretty, and she's so cool. And then it was like, and and then she's kind of frozen in time in that in that way. <clears throat> and now, you know, seeing her as like this little kid with kids of my own, and I'm able to look at her from like you know 30 years in the future and see this whole other side of her and see my life having transpired in the meantime. You know, from when I was a kid too to now that I'm an adult and my kids are almost her age. And it's uh, this movie is like such a, it's such a real part of our lives, and it's almost like a way that we're marking the passage of time. You know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Just to piggyback what you guys were saying about how it's different now with um, with the binge watching and stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of finding random shit to watch. It's something me and my dad used to do, flipping the channels. That's how I found Nightmare on Elm Street, which got me to horror. That's how I found the Alien movies. And I'm not a big TV guy. I'm more of a movie guy. And with the 8 million streaming services out there, one of my favorite things to do is, like I'm a blockbuster, like I'm a cable TV, I'll sit there and flip and look for a movie I've never heard of before and watch it. Me and my uh, best friend, we'll still do that uh, that stuff on um, Friday nights. We'll grab a pizza, only this time it's beer and not, uh, and not soda. We'll hang out, we'll uh, flip through movies. Um, there's actually a funny story about that. There's this one um, horror movie that's on Hulu. It's called uh, The Body. It's some original movie they, they, uh, they made. And I'm watching it. It looks familiar. And I'm sitting there. So I'm looking there. I remember this little movie watched called Patient 7, some independent horror movie. So I go back to it and through us, one of the days of us flipping channel, um, flipping through our movies to watch and stumbling on that, it ended up being really good. There was a short story called The Body. So I'm doing a little reading up on IMDb. The same guy who directed that short story, Hulu, turned it into a full movie. So that was pretty cool. I never would have known that if we weren't doing like the blockbuster horror nights. It was pretty cool. I always could awesome. see those little touches. Yeah. yeah, I gave him a little. I gave him a little shout on uh, Twitter, so it was pretty nice. 
And I hope people still so, do that. Uh, I, I, I really do because like that's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful part of the human experience, you know? Yeah. The, the streaming service is a new blockbuster and that's hopefully how, you know, people will find, uh, you know, the alien movies just like we did. And uh, to kind of pivot back as we wrap this up, uh, I just, again, I can't go on enough about how pitch perfect and note perfect the entire ensemble of aliens is, you know, and even what you were saying, Patrick, about uh, everybody sitting in the Weyland Yutani boardroom and that, and that scene and they're kind of grilling Ripley and how authentic that was. I mean, we've all, you know, we, we work, we all work in companies and um, we've had times in our life where we had to kind of talk about certain things or, People wanted had questions to ask, and or we know people who work in environments like that, where kind of all business, and they're like, "Where's the humanity?" And they're very like, to Ripley, they're like, "You you lost this money for us, like you need to account." And they they're kind of absent of humanity because they they need to find out where all their money went, um, and just how again authentic and genuine those performances were, um, and even. Uh, Ripley's kind of reaction to that, um, where she's like, Hey, I'm a, she's almost saying, Hey, I'm a person here. You know, I'm not, this is just, isn't 42 and adjusted dollars. This is, um, things happened. Uh, it's like when you're trying to explain something, maybe some, somebody heard some terrible story that involved you and they've already made up their mind, but you're trying to say, wait a minute. No, wait. You're like, God damn happened. it, that's not all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just the, the, those little moments of of uh, character and just the, the smokiness of the room, and the, even though the, we never see any of those actors again, um, like you were talking about Van, du- Van Leeuwen, um, it's amazing. Just just the little touches that they give um, to to give us the sense of the world that he's created, but also showing us that it's not that far removed from the world that we live in. And I think that's also another, uh, 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 testament to who James Cameron is and was right. Just two, two, what's your favorite character moment from the movie? Oh shit. Both of you. Oh man. Well, hey, hang, hang, hang on. I, I want to get to that, but, but I just want to follow up on, on one quick thing before I forget that I wanted to bring up by that scene, and then we're going straight into that. I, okay. I just want to say, uh, so do you remember how that shot is established when they go into the conference room? Yes, her back is turned. That's true. And do you remember what the camera's yeah. doing? Uh, it's on the screen of everyone who died first. But before it shows that, it's the same Steadicam thing going into the room. So it shows the, it shows the oh, table rotating, just like it did when they got into the cafe and <laughs> to the mess hall, right? Not not the cafe. <laughs> it's that same. It's the same thing where Cameron is establishing a sense of the, us. Because think think about it from a filmic standpoint, from a cinematography standpoint, it is an unusual choice to do that, right? Like you you have an establishing shot. That's like typically how you establish that you're outside or you're inside or you know where wherever you are. There's an establishing shot, right? But what Cameron does a lot is he gets rid of the idea of an establishing shot and he has us literally going into a space, right? So it's not like we're not like seeing it in context of, of a greater layout of things. We're seeing it as somebody would ducking through a doorway and sitting down at a table, right? So like so there's that. And then also going around the table, there's nobody like twirling a mustache. There's nobody doing villainous things, even though they are so evil in what they're actually doing, what they're doing makes sense for who they are, right? They're like Jamie said, they're concerned with the bottom line. So like the the reason why those characters feel so real is because we all know people like that, like you were saying. And the reason why we're able to recognize these personality types so accurately is because they're not cartoonish, because they're they're just real 
fucking, you know, bureaucracy-focused, draconian douchebags who are focused on the bottom line and completely results and goal-oriented to the point where nothing else matters and humanity falls by the wayside. All right, going back to Dave's question. Favorite moments, character moments from the movie? It doesn't have to be perfect because we all know that there are more... There's more than one great character moment, right, for everybody. I can give you... Obviously. How about let's just go through a bunch of them, okay? Like, let's just go go around a circle, okay? Cop out! (laughs) And then we'll choose our friends, okay? And then then we'll choose our friends, okay? All right. So this is like lightning round. So I'm going to just throw one out there, okay? I love the moment when Bishop grabs Newt as the airlock is open at the end of the film and keeps her from falling off. I think that's it's a moment where you realize how far this character has come to the point where he's literally he's literally ripped in half and he's saved them and then the last thing that he does in the movie before he's bagged up and shipped off is he saves a little girl's life with literally only his fingers because that's all he has left at that point. And I think that's just such a deeply heroic moment, and I think it just shows uh, how amazing Bishop is. Dave, you're up. All right. I like uh, Hicks falling asleep during the drop. Because he's just like, yeah, all right, I've done this before. I'm going to take a nap. Yeah. Next. That's a great character moment. Uh, My favorite, one of my favorite moments in Aliens is this almost a flip of the script where this is towards the end of them being on the planet, and Newt has been... Uh, taken by an alien, right? And they're trying to get in, and they're trying to, you know, after they've uh, cut through the 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 grate, um, and Ripley knows that she's in danger, and finally get her, and Ripley sees the eye, the 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 head, Casey, the doll, kind of sinking in the water, and she starts losing it, and she's like, no, 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 and um, she's screaming, and she's losing it, and H- Hudson's pulling her back, or Hick is pulling her, Hicks is pulling her back, and she's like, he's like, no, no, we got to get out of here, and she's like, yeah, she's alive, great. and he's like, I, I believe you, she's alive, but we have to go. Um, I love that moment. Me too. It's this, it's this, it's where she has great. always been that way for everyone else, pulling them back. Yes, and that was the it's moment a Ripley needed- moment. Right? Yeah, she needed to be pulled back, and he did it successfully so that she found herself again and realized, I got to go back for this girl. And I don't think he would have done that if he hadn't been observing and, lear- and learning from Ripley the entire film up to that point. I think that she has rubbed off on him to the point yeah. where now he knows, like, Correct. fuck well, it, like, we got to make that I don't, decision. I don't think it's, no, I don't think that the, it's Ripley. I think that's who, who Hudson, or sorry, I always mix him up. That's who Hicks is. It's who Hicks was from the beginning. That's Hicks. He's Hicks. Hicks has has been measured since day one. Hicks has been cool and calm and a thinker. You see that from day one. So I think that that's just who he is. I don't think he learned anything from Ripley. I think certainly they're learning things from each other. Um, I mean, even that moment where she's learning how to use the gun, that's a wonderful moment where she's kind of, again, acquiescing. She's saying, I don't know how to use this. Please teach me. But until that point, they've been learning from her. Then she steps back and she learns. Yeah, totally. I also Amazing love scene. the I love the line. I guess this is another moment I'll, I'll go quick, but building off what you're just saying, I love when he gives her the motion tracker, the the um the, you know the the oh, yeah. spotter and yes. he's like it's yeah. not like we're engaged or something. Yeah. And it's just it's such a fucking wonderful moment. It's so yeah. real. It's so full of love, you know? Like yeah. when I met yeah. my wife, we would joke like that, you know? Like we we would have these little these little things where we'd be like, well, you know, it doesn't mean like, you know, I'm not trying to sleep with you or something like that, but like, you know, you look pretty good. It's these little moments where like, you just sort of say it's, it's a real human connection, you know? There's so much, there's so much. I mean, again, we could probably do a whole other episode just of the (laughs) small moments that a lot of us don't take 
a lot of us take for granted. Not that we take for granted, but there's just so much going on. Um, but yeah, those that again, James Cameron's brilliance is those small moments. It's not just the big, oh my god, here's the queen. Let's shoot the let's shoot the egg sack. It's the Hicks needs help. Like even when they go into the elevator and Hicks gets sprayed, and there's a desperate moment, and Ripley's also oh, yeah, freaked out. Like, and she's helping him take off the armor, and uh, she doesn't. Uh, in that moment, you don't know if Hicks, Hicks is gone. Like we don't know. Like he could be gone. This could be it for him, and you feel that tension from Ripley, and that moment is, and it's over. Um, and that's just again testament to those actors and that script and the pacing and the energy and the trust that the actors had between each other and the camaraderie again she didn't meet um michael bean until the end you know because he was yeah. brought in at the end I, I just we could go on and on but we should probably wrap up just, just real quick i just think my favorite scene is when they're um all in medical and they're all waiting and they can't find where they are and then ripley looks up then hicks goes to check and the only time in the movie where he shows he, you see any type of expression that is not calm and stoic. When he sees those aliens, he freaks the fuck out. I think it's a fantastic moment. Right. Because who's in danger, then, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And that what is it? it says so much about him, about, about what he really yep. values and what he's really afraid yep. of losing, you know? And likewise, just, just like before that scene, we, we haven't even talked about it, but the scene about monsters when, when Ripley's putting Newt to bed, I mean, what a fucking profound oh, meditation yeah. oh, on the yeah. nature of evil yeah. is that moment. Yeah. On on yeah. on the yeah. fact that like you take this this monster movie that's sort of oozing with machismo and with what you think of as sort of nineteen eighties sort of like you know jingoism, like we can you know conquer anything through superior firepower, and then at the center point of that movie, you put a relationship between a mother and a pseudo daughter talking about how monsters are real, but they're not the monsters you think they are. They're the people in that conference yeah. room, right? They're the people in the cryo yeah. trying to sneak you past quarantine. There are monsters in this world, and it is okay to say that. And as a parent, it, I mean, I, I wonder sometimes how much Aliens specifically has informed my parenting style. Because it's like, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think that it, it, Ripley and, to a degree, Hicks are like perfect parents for Newt, even though they're not really her parents, you know? They, they're completely real about real danger and real evil. And they don't sugarcoat it, but they also say that like you, there's still goodness in the world, and there's still things to hope in, and you can still fight. And if you and if you are in danger, you can still find a way out because we don't give up on each other because we go back into fucking hell, you know. And that's why that moment that you know we brought up um, a, a number of episodes ago as one of my favorite things in the whole entire saga when Ripley holds Newt on the platform as it's falling apart right at the end before Bishop comes back, you know, and and she cradles newt and says like don't look you know as the queen comes up um why that moment just hits you like a fucking freight train every time is you realize what a metaphor for the world is that you know the world is a place that is if you're not careful going to swallow you up and burn you up and spit you out you know and part of the beauty of the human experience is that we can transcend that with love with connection and with trust and we can say you know what the world's fucking difficult but I'm going to hold you and we're going to make it through. And if, even if we crash and burn, we're going to do it together and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I'm going to last moment I want to mention before we close is it's a beautiful moment exchange between Ripley and Newt in that same scene where she Ripley says, I bet Casey doesn't have bad dreams. And Newt says, Casey, she goes, Ripley, Casey doesn't have bad dreams because she's just a piece of plastic. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great moment. 
that tells you don't un- don't underestimate children. Children yes. understand yes. more yeah. than we think that they do. Children are stronger than we think that they are. Newt survived that un- cr- in some crazy way, but we hear stories about that all the time of children who survive horrible things and they find them buried somewhere in a well, something, they've escaped, they've been in someone's house for years and years. They should have died, but they didn't, and they lived. And and Newt was one of them. And she wasn't just a survivor. She was smart. And Cameron wrote her that way. Like, this is a smart girl. She she knows maybe Casey brings her comfort, but she also knows Casey isn't real. Um, and that but she, she can chooses, delineate. She still chooses to treat Casey like she's a real companion because she makes the choice to do yeah. that. Well, she needed right? Casey before everybody arrived, right, really. Right, right. Casey was her only kind of faux human her right. only kind of human experience and i think and i see my kids do that all the time they do that yeah. all the time like we choose to pretend in, in magic because it makes the world an easier place to live in you know it, well, does, it doesn't mean that figures. we're dumb i mean i'm looking but... at star wars figures right now i have a shit ton of star wars figures i make figures and they're all sitting there in front of me right now and i in, imbue them with is that the correct term yeah right yeah imbue, i imbue them with some type of humanity which brings me comfort so, right. of course, you know, it's it's awesome. It's amazing. Well, folks, thanks for listening. Gogol, thank you for coming on. Yes, Wait. always a pleasure. I feel like that the was... Pleasure's so, always yours, I should say. I feel like that was so short, but that was an hour and 20 minutes almost. God. Yeah, that didn't feel right. like it. <laughs> well, so, yeah, uh, thank you everyone for listening um, for this next uh entry into 40 Miles of Bad Road. We have more coming. Uh, we're about a little bit over halfway through the the series right now we hope um we have a lot in store so yeah see you guys for more on this and our other projects please visit www.perfectorganism.com if you'd like to join the conversation find us on our closed facebook group building better worlds to support the show please consider visiting www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support we've got some great perks available and as always please consider rating reviewing and sharing the show we can't tell you how much your support means to us but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better more ambitious and more dynamic content for years to come